at this time. And if you would meet your leaders right out the back doors. And if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open to the book of Psalms? And we're going to be in Psalm 51 this morning. If you don't have your Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And I want to encourage you to open up that black Bible and follow along with us. You will need your eyes on the page today for Psalm 51. If you're using that black Bible, uh, you'll want to turn to page 499. And that's where you'll find Psalm 51. You know, there are many parts of the Bible that we like to recite as if they are our own. Like, we get really excited about these verses or passages, and we can easily find ourselves in them. So, for example, Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Rah! We love that verse, and we should. It's great. John 3.16, for God so loved Cody that he gave his one and only son. Love that verse. Jeremiah 31, I know the plans I have for you. We love these passages in Scripture. But what about Psalm 51? Is Psalm 51 a prayer that you can pray about yourself? Is it a chapter that you can say, this is me and this is mine? That may prove challenging. Because Psalm 51 is a prayer in which David confesses his sin and pleads with God to restore him. It comes in the wake of really gross sin. We're told in the heading of the song, this is a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. The story is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. It would be well worth your time to add this to your Bible reading menu for the week, to sit down with those two chapters, to read that story, and then come right back over here to Psalm 51. In that story in 2 Samuel 11, you know that David summoned Bathsheba to his palace, and he had his way with her, and he later learned she was pregnant. And unable to cover the crime he had committed against Bathsheba, Well, he had her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. David thought he had taken care of everything, thought he had covered all the bases. Uh, But one person saw what happened, and that was the Lord. And so the mouthpiece of God, a prophet named Nathan, came to the king's palace. And he exposed David's sin and God's judgment against David. It's a really sobering piece of Scripture. And so Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession and repentance following the outing of his sin. Now, it's easy for us to read Psalm 51 as long as it's about somebody else. It's hard for us to find it to be an authentic representation of who we are and what we've experienced. Some things in this psalm may offend you. You may feel, well, that's not me or that's not true. But isn't that the way Scripture always works in our lives? When Scripture diagnoses our lives at some place very different than we diagnose our lives, that's where dialogue begins and that's where transformation begins. And so we may come to Psalm 51 a little bowed up, a little defensive, We may find that these are exactly the words that we need to hear, exactly the words that we need to pray. Psalm 51 is a prayer for spiritual renewal and restoration. 
It's very possible you come in here far from God today. You might be far from God and you know it and you would avoid Psalm 51 because it's painful for you to confront your sin again. It's possible you're far from God and you don't know it. You're righteous on your own terms and you justify yourself before God. And so you avoid Psalm 51 because you think it's not really relevant to you. Now, while owning our sin is difficult, Psalm 51 doesn't condemn us. It's hopeful. It speaks of new beginnings and incredible possibilities by the grace and love of God. The star of Psalm 51 is not our sin, but our God who's gracious and compassionate. And so my purpose in preaching this passage today is to lead you to spiritual renewal. If you came in here spiritually broken today, we're going to hear this prayer and participate in this prayer that leads us to forgiveness and restoration by faith in our God. So I'm going to read Psalm 51 again. I know we just read it a little bit ago, but we need to hear it a second time. And as I read... I want you to ask yourself this question, can this be my prayer? Follow along with me in Psalm 51. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me against you you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight so you're right when you pass sentence you're blameless when you judge indeed I was guilty when I was born I was sinful when my mother conceived me surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So that's the psalm. And you can easily see the problems in making it meaningful and authentic to our own experience, to our own prayer. The language is so intensely personal. In places it's almost graphic. The scope of confession is so broad and so deep. It's a prayer where the one speaking is laid bare before God. This is who I am and all my brokenness and all my rebellion and all my sin. It's not comfortable, but it's hopeful. And this is for us 
This is our prayer. Psalm 51 teaches us how to pray when we need spiritual renewal. So I want to show you four parts of a prayer for spiritual renewal. My hope is that today and in days to come, when you find your relationship with the Lord broken, that you would come back to Psalm 51 and you would use this tool to guide you in prayer and spiritual restoration. So four parts of the prayer for spiritual renewal begins, first of all, with this. We're going to remember God's character. When I come to God broken in my sin, when I come to God empty of myself, I want to remember, first and foremost, God's character. In the opening line of this psalm, David makes it clear what he desires. He asks of God, he says, be gracious to me, God. Or in other words, he's saying, God, I'm going to ask for you to show favor to me, though I in no way deserve it. And then starting at the end of verse 1, he makes this threefold request. Look at it with me. He says, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, cleanse me from my sin. What does David bring to the table in this interaction with God? He brings sin. What does he own? What does he possess? He possesses sin. Three times in this one little line, he uses a possessive to describe his sin. It's my rebellion, it's my guilt, it's my sin. In those three words, rebellion, guilt, and sin, they don't describe different types of sin or different degrees of sin, but rather when stated together, those three add up to a sum greater than their individual parts. Rebellion is bad. Guilt is bad. Sin is bad. When you use all three of those words together, though, it increases the intensity of your wrongdoing to the greatest possible degree. Now, what reason could David use to come before God and ask for grace? What gives him the shameless audacity in his rebellion, guilt, and sin to come before God and say, I need you to show me favor? Why would he do that? He does that because of the character of God. And he states it in verse 1. Look at it. Be gracious to me, God, According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. According to your faithful love. The Hebrew word for that phrase, faithful love, is the word chesed. I love to point it out every time we read it in the Old Testament. It's such an important word for you as a follower of Jesus to commit to memory and to carry with you. It's not easily translated into English. Uh, the CSB that I'm reading from this morning translates it faithful love. The ESV translates it as steadfast love. King James translates it as loving kindness. The NIV translates it as unfailing love. You know which one is right? They're all right. Hesed is a, a challenging word to put into English, but it describes a love that surpasses ordinary kindness and friendship. It runs deeper than societal expectations or changing emotions or even what's deserved by the recipient of that sort of love. It is a committed, familial, unfailing love that comes to life in actions. David says, God, I'm going to appeal to your chesed to me. You're faithful when I'm unfaithful. That's the kind of God you are. Unfailing love. God, I've failed immensely. 
but you're a God who succeeds in love. I'm going to appeal to your love. David appeals to God's faithful love and also in verse 1 to God's abundant compassion. Again, the Hebrew word translated abundant compassion is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the way a pregnant woman feels about the child in her womb. It's also used in the New Testament to describe how a father feels when he sees his lost son in the distance returning home after a long time away. Do you remember this story in Luke chapter 15? Let me refresh your memory. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 18, we find the younger son eating alongside pigs, having wasted his inheritance. And he says this, I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. There's the word. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. We can come to God for forgiveness, even from our most heinous sin, because He's a God of faithful love and abundant compassion. That could be the end of our time together this morning, and we would worship and sing hallelujahs and praise Him, because He has not failed His people. He is faithful when we're unfaithful. He never lets us go. Faithful love, abundant compassion. He loves you so much. And though you are rebellious, guilty, sinful, he is loving and compassionate. He does not let you go. And so when I come to God, broken by my sin, aware of my guilt, tired of my sin, I've got to remind myself I'm coming to a God of faithful love and abundant compassion that's going to drive me towards his throne of grace. Psalm 51 teaches us first, we start this prayer by remembering God's character. The second part of this prayer is to confess our guilt. We're going to remember God's character. He's loving and compassionate. And then we're going to confess our guilt. In verses 3 through 5, David speaks his sin to God. And there's a few interesting things to note here. First of all, it's interesting that David does not name his specific sin. Bathsheba's name is not listed in Psalm 51, Uriah's name, nor David's specific actions, adultery, murder, not mentioned in Psalm 51. So when we look at ancient Hebrew poetry through the lens of 20th century values, 21st century values, what year is it? 21st century values. We might look at it and say, well, David's not taking it serious. But this is far from the case. David doesn't just confess generic surface level sin. He doesn't simply pray, forgive me where I've failed you, or God, forgive me for all my sin. He burrows down into the marrow of his sinfulness. Verse 3, I am conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. He's ever mindful of the depths of his brokenness and his actions against others and supremely against God. Verse 4, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Again, 21st century values read that line and say, no, David, you sinned against Bathsheba, and you sinned against Uriah, and that's correct, he did. 
But if he doesn't sin first against a holy God, there's no sin against Bathsheba and Uriah or anyone else. We can sin against ourselves. We can sin against our own bodies. We can sin against our neighbor. Whatever the direction of our sin, it's always in the arena of treason against God. So David's not saying that his sin against others is a small thing or it doesn't count or it doesn't need to be considered. He is taking it to the greatest possible intensity. I have sinned against God himself. When Nathan confronts David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David's only question in response was basically this. He just basically says, how do I cover my tracks? But now in Psalm 51, his question is, how could I treat God this way? And so since David knows his sin, he accepts God's verdict against him. He says in verse 4, so you're right when you pass sentence. The verdict is not outstanding. The verdict has been rendered. He is guilty. You're right when you pass sentence. You're blameless when you judge. No one faults God for finding David guilty for his sin. And when we get to verse 5, we see finally how fully David comprehends his sin. He says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. So he's saying this These sinful acts are not a freak one-time occurrence. This has always been in his character. His sin is an extreme expression of the warped person he has always been. So when he says, I was guilty when I was born, he's saying, I am by nature an object of God's wrath. We find that in Ephesians 2. And when he says, I was sinful when my mother conceived me, he's not blaming his mother for his sin. He's not saying there's something questionable about his conception. He's saying, I was sinful when I was born, and before that, I was sinful when I was conceived. He is not a sinner simply because of what he has done. He is a sinner because of who he is. His lungs work, his heart beats, and he has Adam's DNA in him. He is a desperately wicked sinner. David doesn't excuse his sin. He owns it repeatedly five different times. Verses 3 and 4, he uses that possessive. My rebellion, my guilt, my sin, my rebellion, my sin. It's his sin. He owns it completely and totally in the confession of his guilt before God. It's a confession of a different type. It might be a confession that we're not so familiar with ourselves. Because one, we, we just don't like to confess our sin before God. We want to come before God and ask for solutions to our problems, external problems. We want fulfillment of, our, uh, of the things that we desire and want to be done. We don't want to come before God and say, look at my rebellion and my guilt and my sin. We don't want to do that. It's hard for us. I came across a great example recently, though. Not long ago, um, Yosemite National Park posted a picture of a letter they got from a little girl named Evie. And this is the actual letter, and taped to the letter are a couple of sticks, and you can't read that, but here's what it says. Evie wrote, Dear Park Rangers, I am a Yosemite Junior Ranger. I went to Yosemite recently and accidentally brought home two sticks. I know I'm not supposed to take things from the park, so I am sending them back. Please put them in nature. Thank you, Evie. This sweet little girl 
took more responsibility over a truly innocent act than so many of us do over mountains upon mountains of sin. Our confession of our sin is not merely a statement of acts we have done. It's an acknowledgement of our nature. Our nature is rebellion, guilt, sin. What is God's nature? Have you forgotten already? What is God's nature? God's nature, unfailing love, abundant compassion. We own the sin. He gives the love and compassion. And when we get God's loving character right, and when we get the depths of our sinfulness correct, then we are on our way to spiritual renewal. We're going to remember God's character. We're going to confess our sin. The third part of a prayer of spiritual renewal is this. We're going to seek total restoration. We're going to come to the Lord and ask for total restoration. Verses 6 through 13 contain multiple requests for spiritual cleansing and renewal. And the focal point of these verses, 6 through 13, is not confession. The confession is done. The focal point now is on salvation. It's on forgiveness, rescue, restoration. And there's a few things in these verses that jump out to me that are worth uh, talking about. In verse 7, he says to the Lord, he prays, "'Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow.'" Hyssop is a plant that was used in uh, purification ceremonies in the Old Testament. You would take uh, a bunch of hyssop wrapped together, you would dip it in the purifying water or the blood, and then you would use it to sprinkle uh, the purifying liquid on the recipient. Uh, You can read more about it in Leviticus chapter 14, also in Numbers chapter 19. And at the end of those descriptions, there's this pronouncement that the one who has the hyssop sprinkled upon them, it's, the pronouncement is this, he shall be clean. David takes that pronouncement and he personalizes it here in verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Uh, throughout these petitions, verses 6 through 13, there's a great deal of inner language and outer language. What I mean by that is David wants the Lord to cleanse and restore him inside and out. We see inside language in verse 6. You desire integrity in the inner self. Teach me wisdom deep within. In verse 10, God create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. To have a willing spirit means willing to obey. I want to walk in your way. I want to take up my cross and follow you. I want to be that kind of person inside. But there's also outside language found. In verse 7, purify me and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Verse 8, let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Verse 9, turn your face away from my sin. Blot out all of my guilt. Inside and out, David wants to be cleansed by the Lord and restored by him. But another aspect of these petitions that's so interesting is the number of future tense requests. David is reeling from past sin. He's appealing for present grace with the fulfillment that will be in the future. So verses 6, 7, and 8, all three of those verses are in the future tense. Your English translation may miss it. 
but it's all future tense fulfillment. Verse 6, you will, you will teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. That's all future tense. Also verse 13, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. So David is looking at his past and he's dealing with God in his present for the sake of his future. He has the whole scope of his life in view. Inside and out, past, present, future, David wants to be right with the Lord. And the prayer of verse 13, I think, is so profound considering the, the human toll of David's sin. In verse 13, he desires for his relationship to people to change. He says that when his restoration is done, he says, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. David wants to show other sinners who feel they are beyond the grace of God all that is possible when they return to the Lord. So David's not seeking some shallow forgiveness. He knows there's no half measures with the Lord. David doesn't simply want the stain of sin removed. He wants a whole new DNA inside and out. Inside and out, past, present, future, every relationship impacted by the restorative grace of God. As I thought about David's desire for this deep transformation, uh, I was reminded that over the course of my life, I have driven a wide variety of very ugly cars. And it all started uh, with one of my first vehicles. It was a 1977 Chevy Malibu. And I don't know what happened with car engineers in the late 70s, but I think they just gave up all hope. They, they just designed filth on wheels, and they said, make peace with your personal God and drive yourself to school and work. It was a horrible car. It was ugly. Two bench seats in the front, in the back. My little sister had practiced writing her name in crayon on the back of the seat. Just an AM radio, it was a horrible car, horrible. But I still took pride in it, and so I would wash it. It would get dirty, I would wash it. And after I washed it, you'll never believe this, it was still a 77 Chevy Malibu. It was just a clean piece of garbage. Uh, washing it only helped people think, that's a really ugly car. They just saw the filth better when it was cleaned. That's not the kind of cleaning David is asking for. This surface level, just shine up my filth. If you'll forgive the Jesus juke. He wants his 77 Malibu of a heart to be turned into a Corvette. Like, God, transform me inside and out. Don't, just, don't let me just have this surface level renewal. God, I know who I am to my core, a sinner from my conception. God, I need you to change me all the way. Every cell in my body change me and restore me. That sort of change will take more than one prayer. But it can't start without that one prayer. Total spiritual renewal happens in one moment and in a thousand moments. It's the fruit of a life committed to following Jesus. It's the result of having a willing spirit that David prayed for in verse 12. To use Eugene Peterson's line, spiritual formation is a long obedience in the same direction. That's how total restoration takes place in our lives. So Psalm 51 teaches us to remember God's character. It teaches us to confess our guilt. It teaches us to seek total restoration. And fourth and finally, the fourth part of this prayer is to worship truly and together. 
We're going to worship truly and together. Verses 14 through 19 are all about the worship that comes from God's saving work in our lives. That whole final part is all about worship. The first part is focused on David and his worship. The end is focused on the whole family of faith. So verses 14 and 15 are, again, focused on the future. God's salvation will result in David's singing of God's righteousness and declaring his praise. Verses 16 and 17 clarify the kind of worship that pleases God. He doesn't simply want to sacrifice. David can't just go in and slaughter a bull and say, job well done. He has to be renewed, transformed inside and out. He has to be broken over his sin. He has to mourn his sin. And then God will receive his worship. We saw an example of this type of worship a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember the Pharisee went to the temple and prayed. He went and he worshiped. And he bragged in prayer about his religious deeds and how he was better than other people, worse than him. And remember the judgment against him. He went home not justified. And yet on the other hand, here's the tax collector who is vile by society standards. And he stands in the temple before God and he beats his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That man went down to his home justified. Two men worshipped. One man's worship was rejected. The other man's worship was received. Why? Because the worship that God delights in comes from a heart broken over sin. A heart that mourns our rebellion and guilt before God. Verses 18 and 19 then turn from David to the entire worshiping community. The whole body of believers asks God for his favor so that they too can worship like David. I think it's important to point out that verse 19 ends again with a future focus. David has already talked about a future, his future, where he will be clean and washed. He'll hear joy and gladness. He'll rejoice and teach others God's ways. He'll sing of God's righteousness and declare his praise. It's in that future, the future where David is restored, that the Lord himself will delight in righteous sacrifices. The whole family of faith, all the body of believers will together with David and like David, knowing the restorative compassion of God, will sing truly and together as they worship the God who has redeemed them and restored them. Psalm 51 takes us on such a journey. We begin with one man's confession of sin and we end with the entire church praising God with one voice for the salvation they've all experienced. And isn't that why we gather every Sunday? Every Sunday we get together to praise the God of our salvation in the week, on our own, in our prayer closets, at our tables, wherever it is that we interact with the Lord, we pray and we worship on our own. And then we come together and with one voice, one family, one body, we together praise the God of our salvation We remember and think of a future where we will be with him in glory forever and ever. But our faith is fueled, our worship is fueled by the God who has called us out of our sin, who has saved us from all of our brokenness, who has lifted us from addiction, who's protected us from harm, who healed our broken bodies, who stood by us in the pit 
who walked with us through the valley, who's forgiven us and restored us and cleansed us and washed us white as snow and will do it over and over again because he's a God of unfailing love to the people that he loves. That's the stuff that fuels worship. We are a liberated people by Jesus Christ. His victory is our victory. His righteousness is our righteousness. His eternal life is our eternal life. His kingdom is our kingdom by our faith in Him. We are new by our faith in Jesus Christ in the healing power of God. That's why the church sings. He's rescued you. He's healed you. He's saved you. And that's why we can worship truly and together. So Psalm 51 teaches us four parts of a prayer for spiritual restoration. We're going to remember God's character, confess our sin. We're going to seek total restoration. And we're going to sing a song of praise for what God has done in our lives. So I ask you again, is Psalm 51 yours? Is this prayer your prayer? If God's grace and love and compassion are available to you right now, why would you delay your spiritual renewal? What possible benefit is there to continuing to walk in rebellion and guilt and sin when grace and love and compassion and restoration are offered to you right now, this very moment? And so we're going to close our time together in a different way. There are times when the Word of God calls us to immediate response. I think this is one of those times. I don't want to just read the prayer and then send you out the door to, to some unknown fulfillment. At the risk of manufacturing something, I want us to have a time where we make this our prayer, make these our words, and we come to the Lord to experience again His faithful love and His abundant compassion. We're going to have a guided time of prayer and just where you are in the privacy and the quiet of your own heart, I want you to spend some time praying to the Lord in the same way that Psalm 51 teaches us to pray. I'm going to put some guide on the screen for you. Uh, you'll find this same guide in the sermon study guide. If you pick that up or download it this week, you'll find it in there for you to revisit again. This prayer is not meant to be one prayer and we're done, but one of many in which we walk with the Lord in confession and restoration. And so this first prayer is a prayer of contrition and restoration. We're going to deal with God's character and deal with our sinfulness. And then on the next screen here in a moment after we've prayed for a little bit, the next screen is a prayer of worship. It's a prayer of praise. And in this, I want us to come before the Lord honestly deeply vulnerable that we might know his love and compassion again. So would you take a few moments now in prayer? Would you take a few moments to pray either what you've been inspired by from Psalm 51 or perhaps what's here on the screen may give you a prompt to lead you in prayer? Just in a few moments of silence here, I want you to start with a prayer of contrition and restoration. And then I'll transition us to our next prayer.
And our next prayer is a prayer of worship and witness. And if you feel so inclined, let this guide you in these next few moments in your prayer to the Lord. Father, this all too brief time of prayer is not meant to be the fulfillment of Psalm 51, but the beginning. The start of a long prayer or many prayers in which we remember your love, confess our sin, pursue total restoration, and praise you for your work in our lives. I'm grateful that when we come to you, we come to a God who is a God of faithful love and abundant compassion. And we need that because we are people full of rebellion and guilt and sin. So Lord, I pray that you would lead us out of your kindness in our repentance. Holy Spirit, would you press in conviction of sin? Would you shine your light on those dark places of our lives, our hearts, where sin dwells, and meet us in the pain of that moment, meet us in the guilt. Lord Jesus, we believe your word to us in Matthew 5, 4, where you say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We come mourning our sin. So would you comfort us by the grace of the cross and the victory of the empty tomb inside and out make us your sons and daughters and let the worship that comes from our lips be the fruit of our restoration it's in jesus name we pray amen